0: Amen. Thank you so much. Uh, Find in your Bibles the fifth chapter of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our series on the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. I have been impressed as I've looked at these verses, looked at these words that Jesus has spoken. Remember that this is the uh, first time that he opens his mouth to teach or preach. This is his first sermon. And these are his first words words. The word all I don't think is too strong for what I've been feeling on these words lately. I remember reading John 12 49 where Jesus said, I've not spoken to you on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me commandment. What to say and what to speak and his commandment means eternal life Uh, Jesus in John 12 said "I, I haven't given you what I want to say I've given to you what the father gave to me to say That's why he can conclude in John 17, 8 by saying, Father, I have given them, the disciples, and Matthew was one of them, I've given them the words you gave to me, and they received them. So these are the words. Jesus never said anything that the Father didn't tell him to say. So these are the words that God gave to Jesus. And then Jesus passed on to Matthew and he wrote them down. So when we open this passage, it is as if we are listening to God himself with words he chose to communicate his truth. And it has to do with the citizens of the kingdom. These these this is addressed to his disciples according to verse one. This isn't just for everybody. This is for he's talking to people that have become aware of their need for God. That's why you start he starts out with verse 3: Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because they realize I don't have what I need to please God God is there and I'm here and there's a big gap and I have this vision of of that bridge between us and then the next one in verse 4 is blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted what follows this understanding and clarification of our spiritual poverty is grief We grieve over our lives. We have a genuine sorrow. There is a place for sorrow in the Christian life. Then the third one that we looked at last week was in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The word meek, we said, meant to be teachable, to be quiet. Now you're listening. You need guidance. And so you've become teachable and and moldable, humble, and now teachable. And then that brings us then to verse 6, the fourth of these Beatitudes, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So what you have here is the fourth beatitude. And for the first time, we see the specific thing that he lacks. His poverty of spirit. Yes, what, what's rich? Righteousness. He mourns. Over what he needs. What does he mourn over? Lack of righteousness. And he's teachable. Where do I get this righteousness? And then Jesus, in specifically pointing out the topic, the main priority of the citizen of the kingdom, says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled or they will be satisfied. Now, two or three things on this. First, notice that Jesus compares righteousness, that is, doing that which pleases God. He compares it to the most basic necessity of our body, food and water. He says righteousness is like food and water. What does it do? Well, it strengthens you. It Energizes you. You remember how that in John 4, Jesus and his disciples were going to the city of Samaria, and they were all at the outskirts of the city. They had walked, at least they had walked from Galilee, and that's 50 or 60 miles. So they got up early in the morning to walk that distance. That's here to Detroit. And they must have jogged. So they come, they get on the edge of Samaria, and they're all tired. Jesus is tired, so he sits on Jacob's well. He sits on the side of the well. And the disciples said, Jesus, we'll run into town here and and buy something to eat and bring it back. You just stay here and rest. So he's sitting there. It says he was hungry and tired. And then a woman came who had had a very difficult life, married five times, the one she was living with, not married to. And he began to share with her the water of life. You know, you, can, you don't have to, to live estranged from God. And as she listened, she realized this is the Messiah. This is the one predicted in the Old Testament. And here he is, me and him alone, having a conversation. And she was so excited, she left her water buckets and went back into the city to tell everybody, I found the Messiah. And then the disciples come back. And they see Jesus. Jesus. And he's standing upright, walking around, happy, joyful, energized. And they said to one another, he was, so, he was so strengthened, they said to one another, did he get food from somewhere we don't know about? And here's what Jesus said. This is John 4, 32. He said, I have food to eat you do not know. And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. In other words, his, when He was doing the will of God, righteousness, He became energized even without food in His body. This is what Jesus is saying. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. Righteousness will be to your soul what food is to your body. It will energize you. It will strengthen you. It will nourish you. It will make you uh, it will give you inner drive. Spirit is vital to the well-being of the body. Another thing that strikes me about this hunger and thirst analogy Jesus uses here is that it's the most basic need of the body. Righteousness is to the soul what food is to the body. This means when you're hungry and thirsty, hunger and thirst is a priority and a passion. Nothing else really matters if you don't have food and water. All of a sudden, everything changes. It resets your schedule. John MacArthur said, A truly hungry man does not want food and a new suit. A truly thirsty man does not want water and a new pair of shoes. He wants righteousness. See, the citizen of the kingdom that Jesus comes to describe is a person who has one thing on his mind, and that is how to get right with God, stay right with God, do what's right in God's eyes. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will take care of themselves. it strikes me that this is a theme you don't hear much about today. Most sermons are feel-good, cheerleading type of inspiration. You can reach your goals. You can can feel good about yourself. You can get that job, get that education, get that uh, political position. But what about Jesus' theme of righteousness. (laughs) Well, it's there. And these are the words from God. One other thought on this, and that is a truly hungry man will value the simplest forms of nourishment. Proverbs 27, 7 says... One who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, every bitter thing is sweet. He means that uh, when Jesus says, hungering, thirsting after righteousness, you're blessed because you'll be filled and satisfied. He's, he's saying that in the development, of the stages, the conditions of the citizen of the kingdom. He's poverty-stricken and needy. He mourns over it. He grieves. He's teachable and open. What do I do? And if he makes it his single priority as, as food and water, God will fill him with it. He will become a man who appreciates the slightest grain of truth. Very teachable. And, and I apply this as a pastor over the years. Sometimes, and you know, over 30 years, you're bound to preach a good sermon every once in a while. And I, I can remember some times when I thought, okay, that was a keeper. That was a good one. And I would inevitably have somebody who would criticize me. It's like, you know, you, sh- you left something out that I thought would have been good right there. Really? Email me later in the week. I'm on a high right now. They're full. They're not hungry. Uh, uh, one who is full loathes honey. Sweetest sermon ever. I didn't like it. But a thirsty man doesn't lack, but a, but a thirsty man, a hungry man, everything bitter tastes sweet. So, and, and, so I, must, I should add to that, that I've preached some, some real uh, bad sermons over time. Believe me. <laughs> you say, amen, I'll go along with that. I've heard a couple of them. No, I have. And uh, when you preach for 30 years in the same place, you're bound to trip up. But I'll have people sometimes, after a bad one, they'll come up and they'll say, Man, it spoke to me. What was that verse again you used? Man, it was good. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. You're welcome. Because you know why? They're hungry. They're hungry. And they can go almost anywhere, hear any preacher in any church, and they'll get fed from it. Others can go almost anywhere, hear any preacher in any church, and they get nothing out of it because they're not hungry. Jesus said, the citizen of my kingdom is hungering, he's thirsting, he's felt his need and grieving over it, and he's teachable, he's meek, saying, God, show me what I need. And he'll go to church and he'll get what he needs because God has promised to fill him. You don't get filled by the preacher. You get filled by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these first four start with poverty, a spiritual poverty, a sense of need. You're empty, see, you're poor in spirit. The second beatitude is you're grieved at this lack of right standing with God. The third beatitude is you're meek, quiet, and teachable. And the fourth one here is your priority becomes righteousness. You're hungry for it. And here's what he says... In verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. Now notice, you've gone from being empty and poor in verse 3 to being filled and full in verse 6. These four beatitudes go together. In fact, and this is in Greek, it's not it doesn't come through in the English, but in the Greek text, the first four beatitudes all start with the letter P. Jesus uses an alliterative style to communicate that this section is a section to itself. You've gone from empty to full. And then the next beatitude is verse 7. Now notice this. Blessed are the merciful, they receive mercy or more mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Now what happens in verse 7, blessed are the merciful, is this. The first four are all about me. I'm empty. I'm grieving. I'm looking and and I'm looking for good teaching. I'm teachable. And I'm hungering to be filled. But for the first time in the Beatitudes, verse 7, this fifth Beatitude in verse 7, blessed are the merciful, the arrow turns from my needs to the needs of others. The vertical has now gone horizontal. The true citizen of the kingdom will ultimately, when he's filled with the righteousness from God, will ultimately turn to showing mercy to others and ministering in His name. In first century Rome, mercy was a disease of the soul. That's the way a philosopher Seneca described it, a disease of the soul. Even up to the 1500s, an advisor to the French kings, referring back to the Roman Caesars, They talked about the virtue of cruelty. That's the way you get by. But the Christian church introduced a new concept called mercy. Someone who's ruined their life, brought great pain and misery on themselves and others, and you walk up and you meet their needs. Jesus had to introduce that so the church in history is the institution following its savior who's you know when he would walk up to the leper and the leper would reach out he would touch him and he would heal him he didn't ask him how would you get leprosy Uh, he would walk up to the blind man. Remember how they said in John 9, the disciples said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? Somebody, they sin in here somewhere. And Jesus said, he didn't sin, his parents didn't sin. This is for the glory of God. And he touched him and gave him sight. See, that is the, that is the way Jesus would do. He wasn't looking to find the fault or the explanation for the misery. He was looking to heal it. So the church of the Lord Jesus Christ introduced into history things like hospitals, orphanages. Who started the Red Cross? Now the word cross is a hint, it's a clue right there. Who started Salvation Army? A lot of these, in fact, some even our hospitals today Especially in the south, they're called uh, Baptist Hospital or the Presbyterian Hospital. When you go south, if you travel south, you look at the names of them. They're all some denomination. Genesis is Roman Catholic. They'll have things, thoughts, religious thoughts on the walls and plaques in the elevators. These things come from Christians trying to alleviate the misery that sin has caused in their lives. Even, and I'll give you this as an illustration, Proverbs 12.10 influenced me years ago. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. The mercy of the wicked, even mercy of the wicked is cruel. Whoever is righteous. You see, what comes out of Righteousness, blessed are the righteous, they'll be filled. Then blessed are the merciful. Once you're righteous, mercy is your first evidence of righteousness. So he says here in Proverbs twelve ten. whoever is righteous has regard to the life of his beast. And, and I give you the illustration of my cat. I mean, it's not my cat. It's not anybody's cat. It just lives in my house. And it's old, and it's fat. And it has this this weird thing about water. It, It only wants to drink water out of the bathroom sink. And so it doesn't give me the time of day unless it wants water. And then it'll go to the bathroom door, and it'll look up at me and meow. You can almost hear it saying... I would like a drink of water. Please go and turn it on. And and you have to set the cat up on the sink. And then it'll just sit there and wait till you leave. And then you can hear it later getting a drink at its pleasure. And I thought, I hate this cat. But I always remember this verse, Proverbs twelve ten. If you're righteous, you have regard for the life of your beast. My Christianity makes me kind even to that cat that I personally believe is demon possessed. <laughs> <laughs> and those of you who, we have marks, my grandkids have marks on their hands to so testify, amen, amen. But gentleness and kindness and mercy flows out of the righteousness that God has given us through Jesus Christ. Remember that these two themes go together righteousness and mercy. Righteousness does not cancel mercy. And mercy does not ignore righteousness. Do you remember in John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery? I mean, she was caught. They grabbed her and pulled her out in front of the crowd and of Jesus, threw her down on the ground, and they, trying to trap him, they said, okay, Jesus, this, we caught this woman in the very act Now Moses said, you have to stone her. So what are you going to do, Jesus? See, they knew Jesus is going to want to have mercy, but he's also not going to want to violate the law of God because the law of Moses said the adulteress must be stoned, put to death. So there they have him. What are you going to do now, Jesus? So Jesus knelt down on the ground and kind of wrote some things. It doesn't say what he wrote, so I'm not going to say what he wrote. And, it, and he waited, and then he stood up and he said, Those of you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. And I would imagine that there were at least a couple of guys there who was not exactly without sin, but probably knew who she was very well. And then he knelt back down and started writing again. And it says that as he wrote in this, and she lay there waiting for the first rock to hit and this awkward period of time took place, that one by one, starting with the older, they began to disperse until finally... Not one single person was left staring at this woman in Jesus. And then Jesus stands up and He says, uh, Woman, where are your accusers? There are none, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now notice what Jesus did. He kept the righteousness of the law because there's no more accusers. He can't stone her because you can't, you have to have at least two or three witnesses. So he kept the righteousness of the law of Moses and applied mercy at the same time. Righteousness and mercy. Mercy flows out of it and is supported by it. This mercy comes. In a sense, to all of us, Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. He's good to everybody, and His mercy is over everything. It's like a blanket, a mantle of mercy that has already covered us this day. So let me give you some final thoughts this morning. On these two Beatitudes, four and five, number one, mercy is the first evidence of true righteousness. When we are filled with the righteousness of God and satisfied and our thirst for God is quenched, we will begin to show mercy to others. Number two, True mercy will be guided by righteousness. These two go together. You can't separate these two beatitudes. Righteousness will guide mercy because it'll be a righteous mercy. And mercy will guide righteousness and come out of righteousness. You won't do wrong in order to show mercy. True Christian mercy will be guided by its righteousness. So you won't do wrong in order to show mercy. You're not going to supply a drug addict or assist one in criminal activities. That's not a righteous mercy. Proverbs 28, 17 says, If one is burdened with the blood of another, that is, he's either hurt them badly or killed them, then he will be a fugitive until death. Let no one help him. Let no one help him. Don't hide him. Don't take him in. He will be a fugitive until death if he has blood on his hands. See, mercy does not come in and cancel righteousness. Proverbs 19, 19. A man of great wrath will pay the penalty. If you deliver him, you'll just have to do it again. Here's an abuser. He gets mad. He abuses wife or child. And then he feels bad about it. He apologizes and everything. He wants everything back to normal. You'll, he said, if he's a man of great wrath, will pay the penalty. If you deliver him, you'll just have to do it again. He'll take that cycle right back around again and again. Christian mercy is not a soft sentimentalism that an indulgent parent or an erring government might have. But rather Christian mercy is guided by the light of righteousness and the parameters that it sets. And then here's number 3. Mercy relieves outward miseries caused by our sin, but you also need grace because grace changes the heart of the sinner. Mercy alleviates the misery that our sins have caused. But grace deals with the root, the sin itself. So you need both mercy and grace. We find in the New Testament that we have both mercy and grace. Most mercy overcomes our pain. Grace overcomes our sin that caused the pain. Romans 5, 20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, by grace are you saved. See, mercy comes in and says, here, let me help. Let me minister. Let me alleviate the misery. But then grace says, you know, you don't have to live that way. You can come to Jesus Christ. You can kneel before Him, love Him, worship Him. Sin needs grace. Sin's consequences need mercy. One final verse I want to give you today. Both of these, mercy and grace both, are listed in Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's merciful and gracious. That is, He has both mercy and grace. Gracious means He has grace. And this is the God that I proclaim today, the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is merciful and He is gracious. He can alleviate the misery our sins have caused And he can alleviate and change and transform the sinner that causes such pain. Call upon the God of the Bible to give you both mercy and grace. Both of them. And isn't it wonderful that he is that kind of God, merciful and gracious? I praise him, I love him for it. He's beautiful. He's wonderful. He has been merciful to me and gracious at the same time. Let's bow for prayer and our band will come have a closing song and ushers if you will come. Let's worship God with our tithes and our offerings as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you today for these beautiful beautiful statements of jesus with words that come from the throne of god thank you heavenly father we have a sense of awe and inadequacy as we look at these precious words and i pray that you will grant to each of us here today both mercy and grace through jesus christ In his name we pray, amen, amen.